Welcome to the inaugural edition of BlackBot Sessions, the latest nonprofit technology podcast from BlackBot. Each year, BlackBot experts speak at nonprofit conferences and industry events around the world. And just because you are unable to attend an event, there's no reason to miss out on all the fun. BlackBot Sessions features some of the best nonprofit-focused presentations delivered by BlackBot employees throughout the year. In this episode, we're bringing you BlackBot CEO Mark Chardon's keynote address from the 2007 Conference for Nonprofits. The idea that nonprofits are the secret agents of change in our society is an inspirational message that resonates well as we start this new year. I think you're really going to like it. Please don't be alarmed. I like my martinis stirred, not shaken. And there are no double O agents in the audience, I can promise you. I am, however, completely convinced that this room is full of secret agents. That's where the buttons came from. What I like to call the unconsidered agents of change in our society. Now, my name is Marc Chardon, and I'm the president and chief executive officer of BlackBot. I'd like to welcome you. It's my honor to welcome you to the 8th Annual Conference on Philanthropy. Thank you for taking time to come and visit us in beautiful Charleston. We've put a lot of effort, both uh, a number of uh, clients who are giving sessions, as well as the BlackBot team, into making this a productive session for you. And if there's anything we can do to make your stay more enjoyable or more productive, please speak up. Tell us. Reach out to us. I'm looking forward to the opportunity of spending time with many of you over the next couple days. And uh, I hope you have a very, very good conference and very productive for you. We'll do our very best to make it a good investment of your time. Thank you for taking the time. Now, now let's get back to the secret agent idea. I'm, I'm really quite serious about it. It's my personal conviction that we will face, succeed or fail in the 21st century based on whether or not the nonprofit sector can provide society with the answers and the leadership that we need to face some of the pressing challenges in the world of the 21st century. We will succeed or fail based on whether or not we as a sector and the world will look to us for those answers, my conviction. So some may argue that nonprofits, by stepping up to that challenge, may actually facilitate government abdication of their responsibility to support social change. Maybe so. I just know that you've been the drivers for change the change agents for the past several centuries of American history, and that the need is bigger, the need is more pressing, and the ability that we have to address that need is larger than ever before. Here's a little context. 17th century, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded, if they wanted to have a school, say my alma mater, Harvard, you went to a few individuals, you went and got some money, it was a direct, immediate, local act. You knew who you were asking. You knew and saw the results and the outcomes. It continued to evolve, but it was quite a local and personal event. It funded churches and schools and, and movements and parks throughout the United States and in other parts of the world as well. That night, by the late 19th century, though, the Industrial Revolution being in full swing... The way that philanthropy worked changed quite a bit as well. And you found larger organizations being found. In the 1880s, you saw, or saw the creation of organizations like the United Way, like the American Red Cross. 
And those organizations were larger. They were a little more distant. They were a little more impersonal. And yet they were very much in tune with the times. The Charity Organization Society Movement in New York, the concept of scientific philanthropy, it was really an oh-so-19th century concept, those movements were towards, away from giving just for the act of giving, and towards giving to produce an outcome. Charity was judged not by giving, but by an outcome in the scientific era of the Industrial Revolution. But by the late 19th century, that had changed quite, sorry, the late 20th century, that changed quite a bit. Now, you can literally not turn your television on to the evening news without seeing a nonprofit organization serving alongside governments, military, FEMA, you name it. I mean, literally all of the old ancient elements, right? Air, fire, water, land. You know, it's an earthquake. It's a wildfire. It's a tsunami. It's a hurricane. Nonprofits are there right beside and often ahead of the government. The bottom line of three centuries of development of the nonprofit world is that there are not two, but three sectors in our world or society. There's the, you know, this public sector, government, first sector. There's enterprise, the private sector, second sector. There's the nonprofit world that is literally recognized as the third sector to such a point that the current government in the United Kingdom acknowledges the quote here, Nonprofit says, the place between state and the private sector. Organizations in the third sector have social goals as the main reason for being. Now, you've all heard the statistics, I'm sure. There are about 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States, about 35% more than there were 10 years ago. About 10%, 10% of our gross domestic product goes through nonprofits. Astounding number to me. I didn't know that when I joined BlackBot. Moreover, there are probably a million and a half to two million and a half other nonprofits as we would define them throughout the rest of the world, and mostly in Canada, the UK, Australia, Japan, but the numbers are growing dramatically in Latin America, the rest of the Far East, Africa. There's also a growing number of what the United Nations calls NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, the you know, Médecins Sans Frontières, I have to get my French accent part into there once in a while. The Mid-Central Frontier, which is Doctors Without Borders, uh, Oxfam's, Heifer Internationals of the World. Now, nonprofits have turned into one of society's most powerful vehicles for creating, building, and maintaining public awareness. Creating, building, and maintaining public awareness. They have done that on issues from disease to uh, war to genocide to calamity to, to environmental need. In fact, I think today that if we're even looking at the sustainability of the planet as a question that's important in political debate or in, or in the second sector, it's because the nonprofit sector has led the way in raising the consciousness that maybe this planet, the way we're treating it, is not sustainable. Simply put, the concept of philanthropy has become an integral part not only of our society in the third sector, but of the American psyche, the American character. When you um, look, the Kettering Foundation did a research in 2005, and they asked Americans what percentage of them actually gave to nonprofits. Nine out of 10 Americans claimed to give. That's about 75% of young adults from age 18 to 29, up to 95% of those over 65. 
That's all well and good, but the 21st century is beginning to change the model. It's stressing the model. The need emergency food requests went up 40% in the last decade of the 20th century. Between 2002 and 2003 alone, it went up 20%, almost half of the previous decade's growth. The number of families in the U.S. without health insurance has increased from 43 to 47 million. 30,000 children die a day from poverty-related causes on this planet. And as we'll see in a few minutes, the government's ability to fund measures to address these things is diminishing every day. And at the same time, the Brookings Institute does, does, did some research which said that only about 15% of Americans now have confidence in charitable organizations, which depressed me a little bit. Though younger adults tend to be more favorably disposed than older ones. That's a good sign. Even so, that's lower than the confidence that they have in Congress. So we have a little work to do. One of the reasons for that lowered confidence is a side effect of technology, the communication immediacy and the community that it can build. I think we as an organization, we as a, as a sector, uh, owe it to ourselves and the world we serve to get much better at exploiting, using, leveraging that medium. We're great at it, but we've got to get better. Our culture's changed from one where people have joined organizations and considered themselves members of one group or another to one where they network but don't join. In one sense, technology has made us more alone. In another sense, it allows us to network or build relationships and communities faster, quicker than ever before. Erica Lucklow of Harris Interactive perhaps said it best, this generation is a we generation, not a me generation. An eager generation, but an anxious one. Living in a world of conflict, they've experienced a lot, both nationally and globally. They're eager to move on with life in positive ways. They're determined to help out. They're well-balanced, mixture of heart and mind. Sometimes called Gen Y, sometimes called iGen, sometimes called the Millennium Generation, these young people have a whole new set of networks that we in the third sector and people like me, a little bit older, um, don't particularly uh, participate in as well as we must. They move beyond the TV screen. They move beyond that sort of passiveness that my generation, the baby boom generation, had in the face of, of news and events. They've also built that ability that I mentioned to create community, and they have a strong sense of immediacy. It's about now. It's not about tomorrow. It's not about watching. It's about now. You know, it's, uh, a year ago it was MySpace. Today it's Facebook. Who knows where that social network spot of the world will be next year. Um, that's a little experiment. How many of you have teenage children? Well, maybe about half to a third, a third to half of the audience. How many of your children are on Facebook? Yeah, the same hands just went up in case you weren't looking, right? Um, now, how many of your kids read newspapers? Oh, this actually social, <laughs> social sector force makes that number bigger than when I'm talking to not nonprofit people, so that's good. Mine doesn't. Uh, she also doesn't read email, <laughs> right? Especially if it's for me. Uh, she doesn't listen to voicemail. And th those of you laughing are probably sort of in the same boat that I am, right? The only way I can literally reach my daughter is by sending her an text message. Yeah, right. You got it. Okay, so. 
Uh, how many of you are fundraising by text messages? Okay. I think I see a problem. Okay. Um, I'll hammer that point home, home a little bit. How many of you who have kids on Facebook are friends, you know what I mean, of your children? Okay. We've just proved definitively that that is their place, right? It's the clubhouse we're not allowed in. Uh, and, and seriously, I asked my daughter for pictures of her prom. She said, Dad, my friends posted it already. Well, honey, I'm, how am I supposed to get to them? Never mind. All I can say is, and this is Paul, this is Paul Resnick from a great book called Beyond Bowling Together, Socio-Technical Capital. Now he's saying we're seeing the productive combination of social relationships and communications technology. That's that community and immediacy thing I've been talking about. With connectedness, we can know more faster, do more faster, get connected quicker, and we can also leave quicker. This leaving quicker part is really important. We who started the internet movements know it as the challenge of stickiness. How do you get someone to stay on your website, right? That's, that's one part of it. It's a real challenge because, but the rest of this challenge of leaving quicker is, well, when people donate, they check the don't contact me page, you know, checkbox on your page, right? More than people of my generation might have. And, and the internet for the people of this Generation Y, millennial generation, is a place where they make things happen, not watch things happen. So ten years ago, there were literally no blogs, right? Now, Technorati estimates that there are 70,000 new blogs created every day. Day. I mean, how do you keep up with it, right? Even the New York Times, I mean, that bastion of paper, quantity of paper. I mean, I got the New York Times Sunday edition, and you know, it, it literally, it has its pointers to what? It's web blogs, because it needs the online part, too. Now, those are all great statistics, and everybody talks about how Internet's going to be the next great thing for us as we help to mobilize donors and volunteers and whatever, and then they go on to say, yeah, but that hasn't happened for me yet. And you're right, of course, but at the same time, Pew Trust did a study in 2005, and 200,000 Americans have internet access in their homes. 200,000, sorry, 200 million. I got the zeros wrong here. It's boggling my mind, sorry. But imagine what that number is today. That's three years later. Uh, One-third of adults in America got their news about politics in the 2004 election, primarily only from the internet. That number was 4% in 2000. Four? What do you think the number is going to be in 2008? I don't know what it is, but I promise you it's a whole lot more than a third. So the Internet is there. It's not going to go away, whether that we believe that's fortunate or not. I think it's a great, great opportunity. Now, the way that I've, I've sort of started to hint at it, but I look at this and I, I try to make uh, understand how we can sort of navigate through this by thinking about it in the context of a generational lens. I paint, let me paint a picture from, right straight from Maslow's you know, hierarchy of needs, the, the pyramid of needs. Um, let's call them people over 65 or 70 traditionalists. Right? My, my parents, those are my parents, they grew up in an era picture uh, that was colored by the Depression. They were driven by memories of need. And then in giving, they responded to need, what they grew up with. 
the giving needs that they expressed themselves were really basic, really emotional. They were often driven by some affiliation or religious connection. And that would be the traditionalists. Now, my generation, the baby boom generation, I'm right in the middle, right? 46 to 64. I was born in 1955. Um, we grew up being more outer directed, more confident. Vietnam era changed some of that outer directed and confidence. But up until then, the belief that we could absolutely, completely make the future happen the way we wanted was there. It's a really marvelous feeling. I recommend it to you. It's hard to get now. We had confidence in the system, optimism about the future, and we were people who earned. And we want to see value for money, and so we respond to value propositions when we're asked for money. The millennials, on the other hand, are much nearer. They start out near the top of the pyramid. They're not worried about food. They're not worried about having to earn it because it's all basically been given to many of them. They've always had enough, and as a result, they're interdirected in many ways often completely insecure because our world has gotten less secure. Uh, and at the same time, they respond to, have a need for a sense of purpose and respond to that sense of vision and respond by joining movements, even if they don't actually belong to an organization. The columnist David Brooks may have described this situation the best. It's the best description I've heard. He basically said that you know where there used to be four stages of life, right? Child, adolescent, adult, old age. He sort of inserted odyssey between adolescent and adult. And anybody who's got a 20-something at home knows what odyssey is in part about. And then he inserted active retirement between adulthood and old age. Now, this... Um, the changes that this odyssey generation are producing, in my opinion, are actually, when you look back in time, will be some of the largest transformations in the 21st century because they are actually actively trying to figure out what society will look like, what their role and place in society is, and if we can actually capture and harness that energy, we will make a huge impact on the world. Thomas Friedman, in his book, The World is Flat, also noted this change in society, and he, he said, there's something about the flattening of the world, which basically means everything in the world is all connected and global, right, that is going to be qualitatively different from other such profound changes. Speed and breadth with which it's taking hold. Basically, our worldview and understanding is different than ever before, with implications we've never considered because of the speed of change and the fact that it can't just change one place, it's going to change everywhere. Now, we know, so we know, no longer only watch events as they occur, we participate them, in them through the Internet. I mean, take, remember Katrina? We actually saw things on the Internet actually before the first responders sometimes saw them, right? The first responders' communication systems, the people who are in the New Orleans area actually know this absolutely. The people who actually had to depend on the formal communication infrastructure were, more, were less informed, more slowly informed, than the people who actually used the Internet and just simply read the blogs and watched the feeds and went to MySpace and watched YouTube clips. But they also, that same infrastructure allowed us to actually respond faster than some of the first responders. We could literally do things like make virtual schools happen overnight and keep things going when there was no place to put them. And that, the millennial and odyssey types, I mentioned texting earlier. I mean, in Britain already, this, this, this generation is using SMS for a lot of different, and virtual worlds for a lot of different philanthropic purposes. It's going to happen here. Meanwhile, in the U.S., things like donors choose. How many of you know donors choose? 
It's worth looking at. Donors Choose allows you to go directly to an individual teacher and support them. It's sort of a secret agent mission, right? You're just simply going around the established orders and you're saying, I like what that person's doing and I'm going to find out a way of making that particular person's job better. It's like microloans, I mean, but right here at home. So they accept all this as the norm, this generation that's coming, and they are larger than my famous baby boom generation. So even though we've already had an unprecedented impact on the world as a generation, theirs will be larger. facilitated mostly by the community and immediacy of the internet. They're empowered by this technology. They're also insecure. So my parents had retirement that was a pension or a fixed income. Now there are 401ks and Social Security. But the kids of the next generation aren't quite so sure that Social Security is actually going to be there. Right? They expect to have four or five different careers. They're confronted with ever-rising health care costs, being told that more and more jobs are moving out of the United States. Some, in fact, are being told that their career, career opportunities are best summed up by the phrase, do you want fries with that? Because service is the only thing that physical, personal, media service is the only thing that somebody else can't do cheaper and better, and I'm not even sure about that. So this unsettledness has real implications for us in the nonprofit sector. The generation does not have a, society, a solid, reliable, institutional sense of belonging. I mentioned earlier, they don't check the I'm joining box. They check the do not contact box very frequently. And as a result, our base of support could get smaller, even as the need and the population is growing. We can get support from these people. We may not be able to get them to belong to our particular cause. Less well understood. Um, is, and I've, you know, I've tried to sketch out these changes. Perhaps I've done it too simplistically, but they're how I think of the world and how we, um, as a sector, I think, are, are the world we're living in. Um, every aspect of the social contract, basically, in this, in this context is changing. Um, Medicare and Social Security, this the amount of spending, the reduced spending that's occurring at state and local level, um, the increased financial burdens that nonprofits are facing um, as they take up the slack, you know, that, all of those things are the nonprofit response to this change in the social contact. And the pressures are showing up in how organizations are responding. You see cost-cutting efforts on the inside so that you can spend more on the constituents and people you serve. Uh, some large nonprofits are merging. Some mid-sized nonprofits are merging. Some large ones are reducing the number of their branches or chapters. I mean, even the uh, U.S. Girl Scouts is in the process of going, say, from 300 chapters down to 100 chapters in order to become more efficient and effective not to reduce their service, but to simply make themselves more effective. Um, let's take a look at another area where the combined pressure is. Let's go a little deeper into an example or two. Community foundations. Community foundations are a relatively new phenomenon in philanthropy. Right? They're less than 100 years old. The first one was founded in 1914. Um, there are less than 1,000 of them in the United States, and yet they have $50 billion of endowment. And they're acting as real agents for change in their communities. I mean, they're helping local nonprofits get funding. They're helping local nonprofits learn, share expertise, knowledge, sources, resources, and they're helping to train local nonprofit organizations by giving them shared expertise. But less well understood is that they're using these assets very wisely and they're drowning in profit while the need in other places is high. Right? So take the Tulsa Community Foundation. Tulsa, 
Anyone want to guess how big their, out of that 50 billion, how big their endowment is? Three billion dollars. Billion with a B. Thousands of millions. Now, they invest so well that they have about 15% of that that they could spend every year without touching the endowment. Without touching the endowment, $450 million a year. Their problem, what do you think their problem is? Finding people to spend $450 million on in a way that matches their objectives, goals, and in their region. But that's a catch-22, because if they can't figure out how to spend $450 million this year, what happens? The $3 billion gets bigger. And the magic of compound interest means that they'll have 15% of a bigger number to try to figure out what to do with next year. So this is coming about because many wealthy individuals are building their own founding foundations, but at the same time, they're looking to their community foundation to help them direct their giving, right? So a lot of this sort of, it doesn't take a secret agent to figure out that there are a lot more millionaires than there used to be in the United States, and that's part of what's driving this source of funding. Um, these high-wealth individuals are also changing the rules of the game for the foundations because they sort of expect the community foundation to live up to the management and control practices that they had when they were actually making that money. So there's a lot of change going on in that sector, and yet the outcome of that what happens is there's money there. There's not money in the state and local government. What do you think is happening between those two organizations? I'll give you an interesting example. So the Communities Foundation of Texas, Dallas, just gave $3.2 million worth of communications equipment to the police force. Now, that's pretty public policy sort of thing, isn't it? I mean, it's not exactly what you think of as sort of the normal accepted part of the center or the heart of charitable giving. That um, is, however, an example of what happens whenever expanding need and government funding going down intersect in the community because it is probably that one of the highest impact things that that foundation could do for the community. One community foundation leader closer to home here recently told me that uh, he expects this to get uh, bigger and bigger and that there's a really societal question built into that, a value question built into that. Because what's happening is that this money will be used for things that were public policy questions before and that private boards of directors, a small number of non-elected people, will be making public policy decisions with large quantities of money where voters and politicians elected by the voters made those decisions before. So they're in a real catch-22. Too much money? a lot of expertise, and a blurring boundary between the government and the nonprofit world. Another good example of the impact of these forces is the university space, university foundations and fundraising. You know, government support's diminishing, the National Science Foundation and Institute of Health, the grants are going down. But I, it, was un, it was absolutely stunning to me to realize that these cutbacks have actually resulted in the amount of endowment-funded and donation-funded support to the budget being larger than state appropriations for schools like the University of Michigan and the University of Virginia. I mean, those are huge schools, public schools, more than 50% funded by private foundations. As a result, universities have turned to capital fundraising, competing with the other part of the nonprofit world, of course. And more than two dozen schools have over a billion dollar capital campaigns. 
two dozen schools. That's largely driven by the concentration of wealth that I mentioned earlier relative to community foundations. But with so many assets to their name, they've doubled annual giving to nonprofits and sorry to um, universities in the last two, uh, last uh, ten years. So to twenty four billion dollars in two thousand and four. It looks like it's going to double again in the next 10 years and probably even double once again in the 10 years after that. That's as the baby boom generation decides what to do with 41 trillion, so not million or billion, but trillion, million millions, dollars of net worth or assets. That's, you know, three or four times the gross domestic product of the United States, 41 trillion, and the annual product. And they're either going to give it to the next generation or they're going to give it to nonprofits, and a lot of it is going to nonprofits. So all the money is a boon to the nation's elite universities. Take a look at that. The top university, anyone want to guess? Harvard. 2% of all of that went to Harvard, right? $556 million to one university. That's $28,000 per student in annual giving or capital giving. On the other hand, there's another just about 20,000 person university called the Palm Beach Community College. And they raised $800,000, or barely $35 a head. I mean, basically higher education is becoming a two-tier world. There's the group of people that have 10 applicants and reject, you know, the 11 applicants reject 10 and take one. And then there's the rest of the world that's trying to fill seats and trying to find the money to continue to fulfill their mission. 20% of the universities in 2003 had a quarter of all of the donations. That's roughly $6.2 billion. These economic pressures, societal pressures, social contract changes are not limited to the United States. In Canada, you take a look at, somebody, at an organization like Sick Kids in Toronto, the funding going down for a hospital in the context of a socialized medicine country. Uh, and Sick Kids had to reach out beyond their local geographic area to a whole nation and take on the mission of the nation's premier children's hospital in order to maintain sufficient level of funding to do what they need to do. Look at the UK. I mentioned earlier the new uh, government talking about the third sector. So Gordon Brown, one of the very first things he did when he became prime minister was to say, oh, I'm going to match giving to universities two pounds to the dollar. Now, that looks generous, right? I mean, what that means is that the two pounds, you know, every time you give something, the University gets spent on a couple of bucks, but, or actually pounds in this case. But what that actually means is the government funding for these universities will go down because they're expecting to get more money by matching than they actually were going to spend if they'd have just been paying on the university. So it's a way of displacing on the private sector the funding of what was a public. They added um, another eight-point program. He's going to spend about half, uh, 500 million pounds over the next three years, so about a billion one, I guess, at today's exchange rate of U.S. dollars uh, to promote the public sector in other areas. Now, that's happening in Japan. It's happening in Latin America. I could go on with a lot, of, a lot of examples. But basically, to sum it up, the need for the nonprofit world is bigger than it's ever been before. You know, we as society, we have the technology. We've got the knowledge to address these things. The sector of the nonprofit world has done a very, very good job of raising awareness, building awareness, and maintaining awareness. I don't think the question is knowledge, resources. I don't think the question is awareness. I think the question is, for me, where will we get, as a society, the willpower 
to actually succeed at thriving in this 21st century, where we get the willpower. If you, I don't know how many of you have read this wonderful book called Collapse by a man named Jared Diamond, but it is well worth reading if you haven't. Um, Jared Diamond basically says that when you look back at societies and the history of societies that have succeeded or failed, that one of the most important questions they face is whether they have the courage to look at their values and take a look at those values that have worked really well for them in the past and decide which values they can continue to maintain and which values they must abandon if they're to thrive, not collapse. Now, the first sector, the government sector, I don't believe is currently in a position to address those questions. They're driven by politics, and politics in today's immediate connected world has become shorter and shorter term. It's gone from the next election to the next quarter to the next month to the next week to the change in the voters' ever-increasing, very diverse, ever-changing demands because they're driven if they want to be reelected, they simply cannot afford to spend too much of their time thinking about the long term. And the second sector is not really much better place. The second sector, CEOs and boards, are measured by their investors, and investors, like voters, are ever more focused on the short term. It's not that those people, by the way, I mean, I'm a CEO, and many people out there who give to nonprofit organizations are also in these other sectors. It's not that we don't get that we need a long-term view. It's not that we don't get that we need a long-term view. It's simply that that's not how we are measured and rewarded as politicians or as executives in large corporations. That leaves the third sector, right? That leaves us. The people in this room, the people in rooms just like this around the world. And I'm absolutely convinced that the bottom line is that society, as I said at the outset, society will and must look for answers and leadership to the nonprofit sector. It, it, it's basically that simple. You know, Dame Stephanie Shirley, who's a very famous British philanthropist, Dame Steve, she's called in, in Britain, affectionately, uh, she basically said that giving is a social and cultural act. It's not a financial transaction. And that is how you and your colleagues, agents of change, secret agents of change, are perceived. You're perceived as pillars of our society and pillars of our culture. You've led the way in creating awareness and change over the centuries of American and world history. And in this 21st century, we will succeed, I believe, or fail based on how well we together cause change by producing answers and providing leadership as we face the challenges of the 21st century. You are change agents, as I mentioned. You and the legions of others like you, tens of thousands of people literally in organizations around the world, you're the change agents, the secret agents for change. Your mission, impossible, to use the vernacular, is to, and you've already accepted it by virtue of being here or in your organizations, is to lead the world to a better place. We at Blackwater are very, very proud 
to work with you as you do that. Thank you very much, and good luck. And now I have time for questions. If anybody in the audience, I remember there were quite a few last year, so um, I'm happy to take any questions the audience might have. First one's always hardest. Aha. So the uh, question is, after a speech like that, <laughs> how do you see this organization helping the third sector face those challenges? I, I uh, firmly believe that technology both can be a challenge to the nonprofit world, but it can be the nonprofit world's biggest asset. And our job is to mobilize technology, both the software, but the service and the people, to help you see the ways in which technology can help you better mobilize basically respond to the need for immediacy and build the sense of community with all of your constituents. And that means making the, off, the products that we offer better integrated so that, you know, when you sell a ticket, you know at the other end what that person's seen. Or if you are, um, have a student, you know uh, you can talk to the parent and, and knowing what they are. But you also, if you have caseloads or management or what's happening, you can get back to people like me with the value of what they've done. So this connection between what is happening and how you turn that into support and mobility and community, that question of immediacy, of using technology for how you uh, turn immediacy into, into community and collaboration, that's the area that we're investing in. And we're going to do that in multiple languages. We're going to do that around the world. And, and anything that you can do to help us identify how better to serve you as you do that um, will be a boon to us because it will help us direct what we do and invest in. Well, along the lines of that, um, what are the plans for opening the API that will allow us to better serve our constituents <coughs> without having all of our internet and uh, presence in the black box? So what's the, uh, the question is, what are our plans in that context for opening the API so that um, you can better serve all the constituents without necessarily having to have all of the products be black box products. Um, there, the, the API has been open. It's been, you've paid for it, but it is actually an open and invisible API that a lot of people have done some really great things on. So uh, I don't want to actually go past that without mentioning a lot of customers who have done and clients who have done a great things with using the API. I mean, I, I know that uh, the Naval Academy is here. There are several of them. If you take a look at the things that they've done and ask them about that, you'll find that they've built on top of the platform pretty well. Um, that the challenge has been, and as it was last year, that the that, uh, client-server generation products, so the seven generation of products, are built in a way that makes uh, an open API a more of a challenge than an Internet platform-based product. So the products that you see that are based on the Infinity platform, which you'll hear about in several different places, will, be, will have open APIs and will be supporting the APIs uh, in, 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 a, in what that generation of product would call open way, like what we did before was open in the previous generation. Um, and so you'll be able to use you know, web calls, service architecture calls built into the service architecture, and we'll be actually identifying organizations with whom to partner also to build uh, you know, specific or specialized applications relative to the Infinity Platform products. It's literally, it's sort of like 
It's so much easier and so much more part of what the economy needs to look like in an internet service architecture generation of products that that's the easiest and best way for us to do that and help the eco ecosystem evolve. So uh, the question is, uh, as a nonprofit, how do I balance the needs of a for-profit organization with the needs of the nonprofits that we serve? And the example specifically is that in order to add functionality to do what some people think should be in the base product, you have to buy a module to do it in the base product. Well, the first thing is that probably things that were not in the base product in the past may become part of the base product over time. I hope that that actually will address some of those needs over time. Um, and I do know that in the next generation of products, the ability to do kinds of batch imports that you're, you're looking at um, is one of those design centers for the next generation of products. Um, and you know, I, it's exactly the same as any organization that is a for-profit organization. So sort of the more general answer to your question. I mean, you take a look at some organizations who are good, uh, good citizens. They've decided that being good citizens, whether it's environmentally or otherwise, is in their best interest. And so we constantly have the challenge of how do we continue to have the mandate to move forward? I mean, I have shareholders that uh, expect us to do a reasonable job of balancing that. If we go on one side of it, we will lose the credibility and support of the many organizations that we serve. If we go too far on the other side, we'll lose credibility and support with the investor. And I guess that would be part of my job. Um, and I'll do my best. And I'll, I know that we will at least be moving a little bit in the direction that is better for you and the next generation of the products, including the RE8 generation. I do think about that a lot, actually. I mean, it, you know, I came to here and it's, because my grandmother said, you know, nobody builds statues to people who leave well enough alone, and yet I'm, you know, it's like for profit, non profit. Ah, anyway. So the question uh, is when you are someone like this organization relatively new to the net community platform, and there are several hundred net community customers who are in a similar situation, uh, how do you know when you should sort of live with what you get out of the box, go to some third party that you're going to have to integrate or customization that you have to integrate, and, and if you do integrate, of course, that does mean you have to continue to figure out how you maintain that as the platform changes. And, um, and or go outside and simply you know, connect to an external service, like a particular case in, in point with Shutterfly, because that community doesn't have a, um, a photo gallery option at this point. Um, the only thing I can suggest is that you ask the person who supports your organization 
um, about the roadmap, and you have to, and each organization will have to make that decision. We're going to do our best to make building things that connect to the products, net community and others, as these APIs mature, so that the APIs are more stable, so that what you build is more likely to continue to work as versions go on. Um, at the initial phases of any product that I've been involved in in my 25 years in the in the IT industry. Um, I know the initial phases, things change. The programming interfaces, the, the collaboration interfaces um, change faster than later on in the life. And we're still, unfortunately, um, at the point where the early adopters sometimes get penalized because the underlying architecture changes. And I can't make that decision. I'm perfectly willing to make sure that somebody who knows how to help you make that decision helps you. And um, my email address is mark.chardon.blackbaud.com. Other questions? Uh, you mentioned that community foundations have quite a, bit of, uh, quite a bit of money out there. How are you reorganizing or organizing to uh, serve that market? Well, we, we serve the market actually uh, relatively broadly today. One area we don't, haven't served um, because we um, have had a non-compete has been the grant management sector. But we do help uh, the, the nonprofits with their fundraising. We do help nonprofit. Uh, sorry, the community foundations with fundraising, with their websites, and with uh, the financial accounting. Uh, it's actually relatively complicated fund accounting. It's sort of like running a mutual fund. Um, the uh, we will we will be back in the market and grant um, in, in helping the organizations manage their grant processes when the non-compete runs out. But I can't say any more today. That's sometimes next, sometime next calendar year. Then I guess, since I see no more questions, that the only thing that remains for me is to thank you one more time for coming to spend time with us in Charleston and to wish you a very, very productive and enjoyable event. See you tonight. A transcript of Mark's presentation is available via free download at conferencecentral.blackbaud.com. If you have any comments about this podcast, please send us an email at sessions at blackbaud.com. Thanks for picking us up today. So until next time, this session is closed. Thank you.